Hello and welcome to the Drug Policy Voices podcast. This is an ESRC-funded research project which aims to engage people who use drugs into debates about drug policy. Each month we'll speak about the findings of our research, discuss the hot topics connected to drug use and drug policy, and talk about the ways in which you can participate in our research. Our vision is to educate, inform and amplify your voices. To find out more information about us, including research ethics, privacy statements and where to go for advice and support, you can visit our website at www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. Hello listeners and welcome to episode 8 of the Drug Policy Voices podcast. In this episode we discuss drug policy and its impact on treatment and recovery. We had three guests this time, April Wareham, Chris Lee and Oliver Standing. We spoke early in summer 2021 and framed this conversation around the recently published second part of the Black Review. We hope you enjoy. Just to start off, for our listeners that might not know, uh, Oliver, could you explain a little bit about the Black Review, what it is and what it means for treatment and recovery? Absolutely. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you for um, inviting me to be part of this podcast. Uh, My name's Oliver, and I'm director of a a charity called Collective Voice, and Collective Voice is the National Alliance of Drug and Alcohol Treatment and Recovery Charities, so we focus on the policy and advocacy work, kind of flying the flag for for uh, evidence-based treatment for people. So, yeah, I I, I agree with your opening uh, comment there, really. We are at an a really exciting point for the field and the black review was published a few weeks ago and it was commissioned by the then home secretary sajid javid um a, a few years ago and it's come in two parts so the first part if you like was looking at the problem and the second part was looking at the solution so the first part was looking at what is the extent of drug use how are drugs getting into our country who's using drugs how are they using them and there was a lot of detailed breakdown around kind of enforcement and crime and stuff like that and then the second part is looking at treatment prevention and recovery and saying okay where can we go from here how can we offer a really compelling um you know treatment and recovery offer to people in the future and dame carol really hasn't pulled her punches she has diagnosed a system which has got some serious challenges uh, a really substantial lack of funding which has happened over the past decade as um massive cuts to, to local government have landed and um she has offered a really comprehensive and as i say quite compelling sort of whole system view you know, of those recommendations taken on by government now and a political response offered um i think it could be a huge step forward for all of us thank you for that and um chris april um do you have anything to add about the uh the review um and what it kind of means for your work my name's chris lee uh i'm a in the day job i'm a public health specialist in local government uh, and that one of the things I do within that is to lead on the commissioning of drug and alcohol services amongst a range of other areas and public health policy areas but I also am the interim chair of the relatively newly formed English Substance Use Commissioners Group as well a national body pulling uh, local authority commissioners together. For me uh, I'd, I'd echo what uh, Oliver's just said it's a landmark report in the sector uh, you don't get many of those and this is and the the, the lens that I read it through is that it's really, really highlighting the impact of years of disinvestment in in public health and public sector generally, and that's that's what it's uh, that's what it's highlighting. For me, going forward, what I would love to see is that uh, the solutions 
aren't fixed uh, nationally. I think lo local government, local places need to be able to respond innovatively so we don't just do the things that we've done before. We, we need to innovate. And, I, and I'm hoping that it's going to be a springboard for, for a, a new era of drug treatment in, in England. April, what about you? So I'm April. I'm director of a company called Working With Everyone, which is made up of people with lived experience. Um, we started off as a group of people who use drugs. Some of us had given up, some hadn't. And we wanted to change the drug treatment system. And we realised that things were a lot bigger than that, that it was about health, that it was about the criminal justice system, that it was about housing and benefits and much wider and along the way, we seem to have realised that there's other communities that are disproportionately affected by some of this. So we've we've started working across lots of different marginalised communities on different projects. I like the fact that it's talking about joined up working. I like the fact that it's talking about this whole person approach, that, that it shouldn't be people bouncing around from one place to another, trying desperately to get help and falling down the cracks, that it should be all of the system looking at this together. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's, you know, it's good to think about this, you know, considering drug policy voices as well from that real lived experience perspective too, uh, something that really connects to our research. So uh, this is a bit of a big question that I've got and we can pick up on um, things within the Black Review as we go along. But what in your mind, what in each of your minds makes for successful alcohol and drug treatment? Yeah, it is. It is a big question, isn't it? And it's it's an interesting question. And I think it's a question with no one fixed answer. And it's a question whose answers have evolved and changed over time as our scientific understanding of addiction and dependency has changed, but also as our understanding as a society of the role of trauma, poverty and social exclusion in shaping human responses to um, addictive things basically uh, as that has on as that has developed and it really has developed a huge amount in the past couple of decades so it's relatively common now for services and commissioners to be talking about trauma-informed responses. It's relatively common for those people and policymakers and, and, and politicians as well now to be talking about um, adverse childhood experiences. So we understand that that broader conception, the going upstream, the kind of public health lens, prevention lens, whatever you want to call it, that's a necessary part of understanding why people might develop uh, problems with drugs and alcohol use but of course if someone's at the sharp end at the sharp end and those problems have got to a relatively advanced stage um that kind of wider conception of what might have happened in their childhood of course only takes us so far so so treatment and recovery for me is about the kind of magic synthesis of to to, to render it sort of relatively simply but a kind of top-down bit which is you know sponsored by the state which is basically a part of our network of public services for citizens who need services for a particular need that is paid for through taxpayers money as other public services are and that's the relatively formal bit of treatment which is commissioned through local government and then there's the sort of ground up half which is where some of that community driven kind of place-based magic contagious recovery magic kind of happens and that's often about citizens human beings who've experienced recovery um you know be, being active within their local community inspiring 
peers, inspiring friends, setting up charities as recovery communities, helping people. And during the pandemic, it was it was small community organisations like that that were often on the front line of getting food parcels out to really um, isolated people who actually might have fallen through the cracks during COVID. So there has to be a kind of uh, a successful synthesis partnership working, which harnesses the best of that kind of people power and the best of that recovery movement and uh you know networks of, of drug user activists and all the different sort of myriad bits of, of of the system that harnesses that and plugs it into the more formal bit of treatment because none of these responses on their own are inherently right or wrong they're components within a wider system so i think it's important we look at we go up a level and ask ourselves what are the characteristics of a flourishing system overall and try and get that balance between those components. First, I'm going to say, Oliver, I know what you mean by the word citizens, but we've actually found that that's really problematic because there are parts of our communities who aren't citizens. Good point. And in some very specific contexts, it means somebody who has no recourse to public funds and and we want to be really inclusive here and certainly getting funded for a rehab if you have no recourse to public funds is almost impossible. But um, for most of the drug treatment system, we can do things for everybody. My answer about what drug treatment is, is it's sort of whatever the person in front of you needs right now. And what they might need right now is help with accessing health or housing or benefits and and just that help to stay alive with their drug use, the clean needles, the naloxone um, and the safer using information. For somebody else, it might be something very different. It might be attending a peer led service or a mutual aid society. It might be a structured day programme. It might be a prescription. It might be an inpatient detox or it might be residential rehab. And the other thing I think we need to realise is that what people need and what good treatment for an individual looks like may change over time. So what they need today may not be what they need in six months time. And picking up on Oliver's trauma informed stuff is quite often people come into treatment in crisis. We're fixing the crisis and then we get a bit of breathing space and then we can look at why they've ended up here, maybe, and look at the childhood stuff. Or somebody may not want to look at that right now. They want to may want to concentrate on getting a job or or volunteering or all sorts of other things. So it needs to be very person focused. It needs to be very personalised. Chris, anything to add there? Yeah, just just a few points uh, and, and can't disagree with everything that's already been said. I totally agree with with my colleagues here. Um, there's a few things really. One is that the overall response is beyond treatment services. So I, I like to try and think of it in terms of systems approaches to this in the drug and alcohol uh, issues belong to the whole system. You know, treatment services can do one part of that jigsaw, a very specialist bit. Oliver uh, and April have talked around the role of lived experience and uh, in, in, in our uh, communities. Uh, I think there's a range of other partners around the table also uh, need to need to be in that space and, and, and supporting. That could be criminal justice, that could be housing, that could be mental health, physical health services. So there's a big system challenge to this. And I think we've got to accept that people lead complex lives. All of us lead complex lives, some more than others. And we live in a system which is really, really complex. And for me, the, the measurement of success, I'm going to sort of pick up on what, what April had said, really, is that it has to be down to the individual. 
simplifying success of drug and alcohol treatment to a couple of KPIs is meaningless, really, when you consider the complexity of, 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 of individuals, communities and systems. But ultimately, for me, with a, with a commissioning hat on, this is around enabling people to lead healthier and more fulfilling lives, you know, helping people move on. And I genuinely don't mean that in a patronising way. It might be for some, some people, it might just be around just stabilising from, from chaotic use to more stabilised use. For other people, it's the whole full-blown uh, abstinence, recovery, a dog, two kids and a dog sort of thing. You know what I mean? It could be anything. So do you feel like what we've got at the moment is set up to deliver, for, you know, like kind of drug treatment and recovery services? Are we are we there? What kind of things do we need to do in order to get there in your mind, I guess? I think we're on. Uh, I'm going to come back to my point around complexity. This is there's not a static picture on this. It varies across the country. And uh, whilst localism is a great sort of policy idea, it, it also can, can undermine some of this offer. So I think I think the UK had one of the best treatment systems in the world. But I think that's been diminished in recent years. You know, there have been tough times for everybody. I think there are pockets of fantastically good practice, but I think we have to be really, really honest. The level of disinvestment across the whole of the public sector in recent years has had an impact on, on, on service provision, uh, not just drug and alcohol treatment sector, but, but others. And the impact has been felt differently in different places, depending on local priority. I think there are some really, really good examples of uh, lived experience, professionals with lived experience and recovery communities flourishing across the country. But that isn't the be all and end all, you know, so they're not always that welcoming to people who continue to use substances in a more controlled manner and, and, and live lives. You know, those people who want to continue injecting have every bit as much right to have a say in what that future looks like. So I think whilst I think we've got some good stuff, I think there's an awful long way to go as well. I think what we've asked of drug treatment and what the offer is has changed significantly over the years. I think drug treatment has never really been set up for the people that use drugs. It was set up as an HIV prevention measure. Um, there was an awful lot of money, um, which we did quite well out of, that was crime prevention money. And then we've had a focus on moving people on, getting them off drugs and getting them into, into work and so forth. Um, but it's never really been for us. And I also think that what people who use drugs need has changed over the years. We get lots of talk about the ageing cohort, and I'm saying this with irony, the train-spotting generation. But we do have, when I first had a job as an outreach worker, we were told you didn't see 50-year-old heroin addicts because people used and then they gave up. We didn't see people who were in their 40s and 50s in drug treatment services at that point. Now we do. Now that's the main cohort we see. And with that has come a number of very complex needs related to health, related to mental health and related to the impact that that using drugs for 20 or 30 years has on somebody. And so I don't think there's a constant or consistent answer to this. We could build something that's brilliant today, but it might not be what we need in 10 years time. So we need to be flexible to the needs of both people, individuals, but also to the community as a whole, because that is changing.
we do have to absolutely harness this political interest at the moment and it's fantastic that it's there what's different is we've got the black review but don't see that as the end point it's about the political context in which the black review was commissioned written and now will be responded to we've had 80 million invested in our field this year this financial year we've had the establishment of a new cross-government unit which is going to drive the policy stuff from the very heart of government in whitehall we've got the transition of public health england into the office of health promotion uh, we've got a new drug strategy which is going to be coming out for our prisons the probation inspector is currently um, conducting a thematic review of community drug treatment for people who are on probation so it's all about identifying these building blocks in policy terms how they interrelate and then where that momentum will take chris you look like you want to jump in on that just the point around like the drug strategy and things really just, just to add in there that we can't we can't keep excluding alcohol out of the debate. We talk about drugs, but we, we, we should be. I know the language has shifted away from substance back to alcohol and drugs. But when we just talk about drugs, we, we've, we've got to be mindful that, you know, alcohol is a critical substance in the mix here. And the majority of people who are coming into services don't just use one one dedicated substance. You know, pe people use a range of substances. Polysubstance use is, is, is normal in, in, in communities. And, and alcohol causes significant damage. So for me, what I'd love to see is a bringing together of those agendas. What I would like to say here is there's some really exciting stuff going on in mainstream health as well, where we're looking at personalised care, where we're looking at health inequalities, where we're looking at social prescribing, where we're looking at all sorts of things. And there's part of me that's really scared people who use drugs and alcohol treatment services aren't going to get any of this good stuff and it is good stuff so i'd quite like to see this become a bit more mainstream um with both physical health and mental health and align with the core values that are being developed there through the long-term plan you know what do you think are the kind of major barriers to people entering treatment do you still think that there's that stigma around entering treatment and how can we try and break down those barriers i guess we put Powerful. stigma to one side for a minute and just look at the actual practicalities of entering drug treatment which is people tend to come into drug treatment when they're in crisis done lots of workshops and i'm sure there's been lots of research as well to say this is people don't come into drug treatment until they hit a crisis point when they hit a crisis point they might not necessarily present to drug and alcohol treatment they might present to mental health or to casualty or turn up in the cells or the prison system or one of our homeless drop-ins and this is really complicated i hear of people saying oh well the homeless people told me i had to be at the housing but probation told me i had to be here and everyone keeps telling me to go to the drug and alcohol treatment service but i've got to phone up and then i've got to get an appointment and then i've got to wait and then i've got to be assessed and then i've got to go back and then and then and then and it's really really practically difficult taking the stigma out of it um i see people who by most definitions are not having an easy time right now with a set of an appointments that would make any of us cringe. 
that somebody who's got a diary and a really healthy bank account would find it difficult to keep all of their appointments and meet all of that conditionality in their life. And then we wonder why people don't turn up or they're late or they miss something or they forget something. And so for me, there's some massive practical barriers outside of the stigma. Yeah, excellent point there. Yeah, I, I, just sort of building on that, really, there's there's a, a range of sort of structural inequalities, wider determinants of health that also impact on people. And, and we are seeing people coming in with significantly greater range of issues, long term conditions. Long term conditions was in the in the press just this week, wasn't it, around, you know, most people having one or two long term conditions. We're seeing more of that. And uh, I, I once read it being described as some of some of it as the collateral damage from from careers of of of, uh, of using drinking, it, it it's quite difficult. I think April's right on the one hand to to put stigma to one side, but I actually do think there is still discrimination in the system. It's why people who are using substances struggle to access physical healthcare and mental healthcare. Um, you know that discrimination is real still. And and when I said before, there's a long way to go. That's one of the areas that I think that uh, we we've got to work on. But we've also got to work on all those structural inequalities that, that, in a sense, hold people out of systems or hold people back from being able to access things. So, just just to add a concrete example to what to what Chris has said, you know, there's there's been work looking at registering people for primary care who don't have a fixed address being refused because they didn't have an address to register well having an address to register has never been a hard formal requirement of registering for primary care and there's national guidance to that effect yet that is still happening now in a huge amount of services if people don't have a link into um you know a community doctor for some of those primary care needs it's already just setting people up to fail isn't it if they're not getting that care which you or i would perhaps take for granted some of it as well is the system is very siloed so i hear again and again about people getting taken into um, a mental health unit for assessment and being told to go away because the problem is drugs and alcohol then they turn up at the drug and alcohol treatment and they get told that actually your problem isn't drugs or alcohol your problem's mental health and they're just pinging around the system and if you don't have gp you can't get prescriptions through drug treatment because that's one of the requirements that locks you out of all sorts of things. But it's just this very complicated. Um, we wonder why people are turning up at casualty a lot because they can't get to see a GP because they can't get support from the mental health unit because they drug and alcohol treatment are saying, no, you're complicated or you need to sort this out first or we can't give you antibiotics for an injection infection. You've got to go to GP. And it's just a very complicated mess where people have very hard lines of what they will and won't do. Just, just to add a real basic point in here as a barrier, when, when we talked before around uh, disinvestment in public services, that's had an impact on people being able to access services. I know there's lots of other issues involved in it, so it's a, it's a complex uh, entity, you know, understanding this problem. But the fact that the footprint of services has effectively had to reduce across the country, the fact that there is less capacity the fact that caseloads are probably significantly bigger than what they were, uh, that waiting times to access some elements of service might might be longer than what they were. These all play a part as well in, in creating barriers, because if your experience isn't a good one when you walk through the door, well, you might not choose to go back. 
same if you if you go and do something else in any other walk of life if you don't have a good experience you 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 tend to shy away from going back for a second bite of the cherry and 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 word of mouth is is critical it's one of the things we've picked up in engagement work before you know if, if people don't like what they're seeing they will they will influence other people around that so it, it's a problem it's not just our sector it's it, it's across it's across the range of services that people need so what are those key challenges then for staff and management in providing this drug treatment for um, and recovery services for people? Dame Carroll um, identifies workforce development needs as one of the main um, you know, topics in her review and her recommendation is that various system partners including Health Education England develop a really comprehensive strategy for the workforce around drug and alcohol treatment and recovery. And there's lots of good individual practice amongst providers, but how do we ensure that's uh, replicated across that system? Yeah, I'd also like to say as well that uh, there's a need to build on some of that really good experience and skill set that's there as well. And, and in a sense, you know, enable those people in the system who are doing things right to, to grow and to gain that sort of be it a qualification or acknowledgement of their skill set or whatever. But we need to be thinking about the pipeline. The pipeline for the next generation of staff we we want this to be a good sector to come and work in with you know it, it needs it needs to offer pro career progression for people to want to come into it people need to be getting job satisfaction out of it people are people are facing real burnout as is lots of the public sector on the back of the pandemic but burnout in the sector you know high case loads complexity of what you're working with minimal resources that that adds up and that's that's a burden on the staff group as well as everybody else and one of the other things that's caused the real problem in the system, and, and I'm going to sound ungrateful and I'm genuinely not, the investment that's come through recently is really welcomed and we are all doing our absolute utmost to get the maximum value out of it. But that short termism around some of the investment has created some real, real problems on the ground. Trying to recruit into a whole load of posts with short term money uh, when actually there isn't the trained pipeline that we've just been talking about of workers. People are just going to be robbing their neighbours' staff in order to, you know, in order to try and fill pot. We'll be creating vacancies elsewhere in the system. Um, so I said rather grandly once that happy staff mean happy service users and everyone laughed at me. But I think that unhappy staff definitely means unhappy service users. If your staff are untrained, unsupported, there's no money for supervision, there's no money to go to conferences, there's no money to take some breathing space and they've all got caseloads of coming close to 100. They're on a six month contract or their services being retendered, they don't know if they've got a job next year. They're not going to be giving their best to the person in front of them. What about um, just a final few questions, one of them about the kind of pleasures and positives. This is a really key theme throughout our research is talking about the kind of the unspoken about I guess the kind of benefits of drugs and alcohol use um you know the kind of pleasures these things that we don't usually talk about do you think there's a place for talking about those within treatment and recovery services just simply to say yes I think we should be talking about it there's different routes in to uh, the complex end of, of, of drug and alcohol use. Uh, and, and yes, you know, there's a lot of people in, in the treatment system who 
you know, have, have had a whole range of experiences in life and there's a, there's a lot of trauma behind what's going on. But there's a lot of people using substances across the country for, for different reasons and in different situations. Some of them will end up in problematic circumstances for whatever, from a whole multitude of different factors. But I, I think to ignore the fact that actually many people use substances and enjoy it is, is wrong. We're, we're making some radical assumption here. People have used mind-altering substances for a long time, but it, it, it's part and parcel of human behaviour to some degree. So it's real, and therefore it should be factored into conversations. I just don't think we can ignore it. It's quite difficult stuff to talk about, uh, and I'm not trying to make any assumptions either way. April? So in general, people don't do something a second time if they don't like it, okay? So even people that are maybe using to relieve trauma or for some under, other underlying reason, they got something from this the first time. They got something for this the second time. And maybe 10, 15, 20, 25 years down the line, they're not getting anything from it anymore. Or the negatives are outweighing the positives. And that's when we see them in drug treatment. But there's plenty of people, certainly when I went to university, I don't know anyone that didn't use drugs at least once. Some people went back and did it a second time. Some went, actually, no, I didn't like that feeling. There's, you know, there's the wider debate, isn't there? There's a, there's a big picture debate about drugs and the freedoms of people to use drugs and the motivations of people to use drugs and what the role of the state is in terms of safeguarding people from harm and intervening and how our kind of apparatus of laws is used in various ways to do that and then there's kind of a much more a much narrower uh, conversation about uh, drug treatment and recovery and clearly that's kind of part of that really big picture if someone's got to the point where they're in contact with treatment services then sort of by definition you know any potential positives are being substantially outweighed by negatives motivation might actually more usefully be thought about in terms of trauma and uh, negative things which are causing people to use to self-medicate to use you know opiates or alcohol as a sort of you know it's like a big duvet that for people in treatment uh, is, is might be more useful to think about some of those motivations to try and unlock psychosocial interventions which could help people uh, rather than to focus on the pleasure principle. Final question everybody, in what, uh, in what ways do you think that drug policy should be reformed more generally? What changes do you think ne are needed to make things better for you know treatment, recovery, people who use drugs? I'm going to go back to where I went to before is drug policy has always been about protecting the rest of society from the actions of people who use drugs. I think the big change for me would be actually we're providing these services to support people who are using drugs. So, so I'd just add to what uh, April said really, uh, again linking back to some of the things I've said before uh, and, and I've been pushing the point around for example uh, alcohol, drug policy, drug and alcohol policy. Uh, why why we separate in them out, given the impacts on our communities, both from a treatment perspective and, and a non-treatment perspective. You know, it's broader than just the treatment focus and that that concept of the problematic end of the spectrum. You know, it's a it's a very gradual curve, really, you know, in some respects. So that, that that's one point. I also think that uh, drugs and alcohol 
need to be in all policies where it's relevant. This is, these are major cross-cutting themes. So to silo it all into one one sort of policy area sort of reinforces the notion that, oh, it's just that and, and treatment services will deal with it all and nobody else has to bother. So earlier when I was saying that actually, you know, we need a systems response to these issues. Well, I actually think that policy should be systematically. Uh, yeah, we'll have a drug and alcohol policy, national policy. That'd be great. But let's also make sure that it's 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 and I know it is to some degree cutting across criminal justice policy, but it also needs to be cutting across broader uh, health, mental health, so physical health, mental health and social care policy as well. It's a major driver of demand in the system in other areas. Uh, I'd also like to see a shift towards a more public health orientated approach uh, to 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 the issues, uh, which will probably sort of link in what April said there around, you know, it being people centred, uh, really. Uh, and, and I'd like to make sure that it also brought in the wider determinants of health as factors that influence, you know, it's not just personal choice. I, I, I chose to become a dependent drug user X, Y and Z and therefore look what, look what harm I've caused myself. There are a whole range of uh, inequalities that drive and push uh, and shape the system that we've got and the system that we will have in, in 10 years time. Oliver. You know, a lot of it for me is in the black review. I'm not saying it's 100% perfect, but it, it it's it's really robust. It's really uh, kind of expansive and comprehensive. So for me, the policy changes I'd like to see, um, a lot of them spin out of Dame Carroll's phrase that she uses, something like, it's a, a recurrent condition in a social context. And to me, that speaks to the uh, sort of medical aspect and the health harms of um sort of prolonged serious drug and alcohol use but that wider social context the the health inequalities and social determinants chris was talking about so for me the policy changes i'd like to see the major investment of money that dame carroll's called for 1.78 billion over five years it's a lot of money uh, i'm not saying we're going to get every penny of that but i really think if the government is serious and they've said that they are if it's if they're serious about uh progressing on this issue we need some major sustained investment it needs to be over that five years can't just be for one year here or there that will flow from political leadership we know the prime minister is kind of interested in in, in this agenda maybe albeit refracted through a lens of criminal justice that needs to be there we need to have the the accountability structures within government around that interdepartmental unit not just to drive it while there's political attention but to keep that accountability flowing through it the political response to the uh, black review is very criminal justice flavored and, and certainly there's colleagues in the sector who uh the, you know that that hasn't appealed to and they, they've not liked the conception of that um i you know i could i could see that up to a point i think we're going to be realistic but all, we've got to balance realism and pragmatism with a focus on on people uh on human beings and on that that kind of dignity so it's that balance there of when to go when do you go with the energy of the system when do you challenge it um, and then the, just the last point Chris touched on, seeing it as a facet of a whole range of kind of life challenges, see the overlaps with mental health, see the overlaps with criminal justice, see the overlaps with homelessness, rough sleeping, domestic abuse, poverty, that kind of the big, big lens. Amazing. Thank you so much. I have really, really enjoyed this chat. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for asking us. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Really, Thanks, Rebecca. Really good. 
Thanks for listening to episode eight, everybody. Just to catch you up on our research, we have finished the end of our fieldwork period. That means we've collected all of our data and thanks to everybody that took part in the qualitative element. If you took part in an interview, a workshop, you provided us with poems and more creative methods. Thank you to you and to everybody that helped us recruit as well. We're working on the findings now and we can't wait to share them with you in due course. We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. We'd like to credit and thank Anna Duffy at A Duffy Design for our logo and branding. This podcast was produced by Neil Scott. (laughs) 